are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 88 on the Black Dahlia. That's right. I'm sorry about my voice. It is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) This is good, too, uh, compared to what it was. I didn't want to kill your ears with my chainsaw voice. Um, So, yeah, this is actually pretty good. Yeah, sounds great. I feel like the more I talk, the worse it's going to get. So, sorry. Um, The harder it is for you to catch your breath. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, we're going to just, we're going to go for it and see what happens. Yeah. Let's just roll roll with it. It worked out that you weren't feeling well enough to record last night anyways, because it was Big Ben's last game. I know. I turned on the TV and there he was. And I said, didn't he retire? And Josh is like, yeah, nobody thought they were going to be in the playoffs. They shouldn't have made that. I mean, even like the worst season, we're still like, they're still in the playoffs. (laughs) I mean, it was luck. And he knew it wasn't going to happen. He's like, just let's go have fun. (laughs) I know that interview was hilarious. I'm pretty sure one of the other players was like, uh, F you. Brian said that like he was mad that he was like, well, yeah, "Yeah, we're going to lose, but let's just have some fun. And I mean, I fell asleep because I took melatonin. So I fell asleep in the second quarter or maybe like right after halftime. Um, so really that was all I needed to be awake for they really held their own in the first quarter there <laughs> yeah I was I was like oh this game's so fun it was zero zero and then they got that touchdown and I was like okay here we what? go yeah well and then it was that just ended real show. quick yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's too soon too soon oh well <laughs> but good for Mahomes mm-hmm. he's a cutie I, I like his vibe do you I do I feel like he's, he's got right. good energy He's already been to the Super Bowl the past two. Good for I'm him. Over it. Well, you know what? Big Ben. You just love him. <laughs> I do. And I don't know why. And I just figured it out last night. But Big Ben, so I, Dad and Jordy were watching it at their house, at his house. And I was watching it with Josh. And he got sacked. And I was like, what the hell is he doing? He holds the ball too damn long. And Josh looks at me and I was like, I'm just trying to tell you how it is in my dad's right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it always makes me laugh. Cause I'm always the loud one when me and Brian watch the game and he's always <laughs> like, you need to calm down. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Never me and your dad would get along. Well, <laughs> when he got sacked, I was like, you gotta be shitting me. And then I Josh was, was like, bad. okay, this is the last play. You think he's going to get sacked again? And I was like, probably that'd be a way to go out. Wouldn't it to be sacked? But he wasn't, but still mm. he needs, yeah. he needs to go. Thanks for all I the know. time. It's been a long time, like a very long time. Yeah. I'm like interested to years. see how next season goes. They're probably going to fire Tomlin. It's going to be a growing year. Oh, you're yeah. not going to do well again. <laughs> yeah, where's, okay. Heinz, where's Heinz Ward and Paula Malu? We just need them. In back my heart the and on my jerseys. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Anyway, oh, we, well. we digress from football. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. We are, our hearts business. are in Pittsburgh. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we don't really have much business to talk about. So that was fine mm-hmm. to eat up football talk. Um mm-hmm. Like always, like, share, subscribe, leave us a five-star review. We got our Patreon, $2 and $5 tiers, and that's about all I have for the business. Yeah, good deal. Let's hop in then. All right, why don't you get us, yeah, you're probably, yeah, 
Yeah, let's do that. I'm probably going to do most of the the talking here. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Elizabeth Short was born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts to Phoebe and Cleo Short. She was the third oldest of five sisters. That's a lot of sisters. Mm Mm-hmm. Her family relocated to Portland, Maine and settled in Medford, Massachusetts, where she grew up. Cleo was a wealthy man into the stock market um, until it crashed in 1929 and that left him broke. He, what a jerk, he disappeared and his car was found abandoned by the Charleston Bridge. Oh, that's sad. It, It was believed he had committed suicide and jumped into the river. Oh, never mind. I take back the him being a jerk. That would nope. be so hard. Nope. Don't take it back. Uh, I do, and I don't. I mean, I can't imagine just wait. feeling. Oh, he's back. <laughs> 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 never mind. I was gonna say I can't imagine feeling responsible for your family and not being able to meet those needs. I'll continue. <laughs> Um, Phoebe moved to a small apartment in Medford and started working as a bookkeeper to make ends meet at the age of 15, Elizabeth had to undergo lung surgery because of her asthma and severe bronchitis in order to avoid the cold. She had to move and live with her relatives in Florida during the winter months, and then would come back to Medford for the rest of the year. She had to drop out of Medford high school in her sophomore year due to her health. Can you imagine that? Like having to live in two different places? That would be awful. That would be awful. They should have just sent her to Florida to stay if that was like better for her right. breathing situation. And maybe she wouldn't have had to drop out too. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You want to hit hit us with the banger over here? Let's let's hit us with this little uh little thing that Rachel almost felt bad about. So Cleo, her father, who supposedly mm-hmm jumped off the bridge yeah that guy well no he didn't he didn't jump in 1942 he just showed up and said hey guys i'm alive and i'm living a new life in california how terrible would that be like i would kill i would kill kill him he left her with five daughters Mm -hmm. to raise by herself in 1929 yeah, I'm just like peace out, bro. I'm leaving. I would hitchhike to California and murder him. Yeah. <laughs> so once this news was known, Elizabeth was sent to Vallejo to live with her father when she was 18. She didn't get along with her dad. I'm sure they had trust issues, which I totally understand. And she actually moved out in January 1942 to get a job in the base exchange at Camp Cook, Lompoc in California. Mm-hmm. During this time, she lived with several friends, including an Air Force sergeant who was abusive. She left him and relocated to Santa Barbara in mid-1943, where she was arrested for underage drinking in September. The juvenile court ordered her to move to Medford, but she decided, screw that, and I'm going to Florida. So the big um, the big mugshot of her that you see around, that's the, mm-hmm. where she was arrested for underage drinking. So she was like 19. Mm-hmm. She looks pretty good. She does. She doesn't. I think she looks like older than 19 though. Yeah. But it's 1940s. Everybody looked older than. Yeah, that's true. They're that's supposed true. to be. Um, in Florida, she met another man in uniform, a decorated U.S. Army Force officer named Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. 
what a who name. proposed to her. It's a good name. Um, he was training for a mission in the China, India, Burma scuffle in world war two, and he died in an air crash in August, 1945, just before the war ended. That's a bummer. That is after her fiance died. She moved to LA in July, 1946, where she met Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, who was stationed at the Naval base in long beach. And she hops around pretty quick. She loves those men in uniform. Yeah. She worked as a waitress and rented a room near the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. She had aspirations of becoming a movie star, but she had no acting or film credits. Some people say that she was a prostitute. Some people also say just a little tidbit that she had, she was a prostitute that had both male and female parts, but that's a rumor. I wasn't able to, you know, conclusively say that. Yes. Right. On January 9th, 1947, she returned to LA to meet her family after a trip to San Diego with a married salesman named Robert Manley. What is she doing? She doesn't know. (laughs) Manley dropped her at the Bitmore Hotel in downtown LA where she was to meet her sister. The hotel staff claimed they saw her using the phone and she was last seen at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge on South Olive Street about half a mile from the hotel. Yeah. Hmm. So um, I feel like she was just trying to find somebody to love her. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think the daddy issues ran deep there, which totally. She just uh, needed to love herself. Yep. And plus she was struggling, so... She probably found these men who were in good, op, you know, good careers that could take Financial care of her. situations. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. So on the morning of January 15th, 1947, Betty Bursinger was walking with her three-year-old daughter in the neighborhood of Lamar- Lamert Park, which was under underdeveloped at the time. She initially thought that she had found a discarded store mannequin. But upon closer inspection, she realized she had stumbled upon a corpse and rushed to a nearby house and phoned the police. I could not imagine. With your three-year-old and, like, the slow realization that that is not a mannequin. Yeah, and probably, like, in a, you know, if it's underdeveloped, it's probably kind of, like, industrial and, like, creepy. Mm -hmm. And there you are with your baby. Like, ugh. Yeah, that would not be great. And this is two weeks after yes the last time anybody had seen her correct so this is the part where we're gonna say if you don't if it's squeamish if you're squeamish just skip ahead forward like five minutes five Um, minutes i mean it's a lot then yeah it's a lot okay Mm -hmm. the body had been cut in half at the waist and she was drained of blood leaving the skin pale white The medical examiner at the scene determined she had been dead for about 10 hours before the body was discovered, which means the time of death would have been during the evening hours of January 14th or the early morning of January 15th. The body had been washed by the killer and the face was slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating an effect known as the Glasgow smile, which I didn't even know there was a word for it, Mm -hmm. but apparently this happens a lot. I don't know. The body had several cuts on her thigh and breast, and there were entire portions that had been sliced away. The lower half of the body was positioned a foot away from the upper part, and her intestines were tucked underneath her butt. 
The corpse had been posed with her hands over her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs spread apart. That was so bizarre. Yeah. We're not done yet. There's a little bit more after a paragraph or so. So just be on the lookout for some okay. stuff. Um, on January 16th, 1947, an autopsy was performed by Frederick Newbar, the LA County coroner, and was identified as Elizabeth Short by fingerprints that were sent to the FBI from her arrest in 1943. Elizabeth had ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck with an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss on her right breast. Newbar also noticed superficial laceration on her right forearm left upper arm and lower left side of the chest so she wouldn't have got arrested they might not have even known who she was uh, they probably they probably wouldn't have been able to to tell who she was um the body had been cut in half by a technique taught in the 30s called a hemicorporectomy The lower half had been removed by transecting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. There was very little bruising along the incision line that suggested she had been cut after she was dead. Another laceration measuring four and a quarter inches in length ran long ways from the navel to right above her pubic bone. The cuts on each side of her face were extended from the lower corners of her lips and measured three inches on the right side and two and a half inches on the left. Her skull was not fractured, but there was bruising on the front and right side of her head with a small amount of bleeding that was consistent with a blow to the head. The cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock from blows to her head and face. Newbar noted that Short's anal canal was dilated at one and three-fourth inches, which suggested she might have been raped. Samples were taken to see if there was a presence of sperm, but the results came back negative. So that's all the the gross stuff. Um, But thank God she was cut after she was dead. Um, And I'm sure that's probably how the blood was drained from her as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But just really weird most people who murder people don't do that Uh -uh. so um immediately following her identification reporter william randolph hart's la examiner contacted her mother phoebe back in boston and told her that her daughter had won a beauty contest after gathering as much information as they could about her personal life they then told her that her daughter had actually been murdered what the what why because that's probably the only way they could get information on her and they're freaking vultures isn't that awful what that is terrible and why would you give more information about your daughter if she won a beauty contest than you would if she had been found murdered well if somebody told you your child was murdered i'm sure that you would go into an absolute tizzy so this was a way to like get them to be calm and talk about her and how awesome she is and then drop that bomb. Like what the hell is That's wrong disgusting. with you? It really is. That's- it mm-hmm. really is. Yeah. <sighs> the newspaper offered to pay her airfare and accommodations if she would travel to LA to help with the investigation. 
which was not exactly true. The newspaper kept her away from the police and other reports to protect their scoop. Oh my gosh, what is happening? The Examiner and the LA Herald Express sensationalized the case. In one article, they described the black tailored suit Short was last seen wearing as a tight skirt and sheer blouse. The media nicknamed her as the Black Dahlia after the film The Blue Dahlia and her hair reminded them of the Dahlia flower and they described her as an adventurous who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. A report in the LA. Not yeah, true. What? Right. A report in the LA Times on January 17th said the murder was a sex fiend slang. So I mean, she might have been promiscuous and it's her right to be that way. But it's right. not like she was out there, you know what I mean? Like that's ridiculous. It doesn't matter. That that's is true. All, like, that's true. Completely unnecessary right even if she Mm. was it still doesn't make it right right why weren't they writing news articles about her adventurous prowling if it was so sensational prior to Mm -hmm. her death yeah (laughs) right um so in january 24th 1947 a person claiming to be shorts killer placed a phone call to the office of james richardson the editor of the examiner congratulating him on the newspaper coverage of the case and stated he planned on eventually turning himself in, but he wanted the police to pursue him further. He said to expect, expect some souvenirs of Beth short in the mail. That was terrifying. I would not be mm-hmm. opening the mail. Yeah, no, that's not great. On January 24th. So three days later, a suspicious manila envelope was discovered by a U.S. postal worker It was addressed to the L.A. Examiner and other L.A. papers with individual words that had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings. There was a large message on the face of the envelope that read, here is Dahlia's belongings letter to follow. The envelope contained Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on a piece of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen stamped on the cover. The packet was cleaned with gasoline, similar to Short's body, which led the police to believe this was sent from the killer. I didn't know that you could clean stuff with gasoline. I can imagine that would like remove everything. Things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So despite the package being cleaned with gasoline, they were able to find several partial fingerprints and they were sent to the FBI for testing, but the prints were compromised in transit and couldn't be properly analyzed. How many times? How, how many how? times do we have to do this? Come FBI? on, guys! You get like one chance. Like, let's get it together. All right. However, this isn't the McDonald's. You're not messing up a cheeseburger, <laughs> right? This is like somebody's murder. But I will say, in 1947, fingerprints are finger. You know what I mean? Like. That was like one of the main ways they freaking identified people back then, though. So not having fingerprints now because they compromised them in transit really screws up. Yep. Yep. That's true. Mm. Um, The same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley two miles from where Short's body was found. The items were recovered by police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline and had no fingerprints. Could he not get, like, bleach? 
<laughs> yeah, apparently that must be like more readily available to this person than bleach. I don't know. I where did they get her birth certificate? Her birth certificate? I I maybe she probably had it with her. Why? Did people used to carry that around? Some people still carry that in their social security card around. Why would you do that? Well, she's all the way in LA, far from home. She was probably needing it for jobs. I would carry assume. it on your I mean, person. I don't know. Do they do that background checks in 1947? I don't know. I'm sure they do, but just like just like now, like you should not be <laughs> carrying your social security card around. That I mean, be... we've all done that. Let's be honest. Have we? Have we? We've done that. I've Have we done all done that? that? Ooh, Why would that. you do that? <laughs> I don't know. You just forget it's in there. What do you need that for? You put that in a file in your fireproof proof cabinet or whatever now it's yeah now it's safe in <laughs> my house but I've been I forgot and carried it for like two years and been like oh <laughs> I forgot for two years <laughs> I don't know I'm just curious how they got that like Nate it must have been in her purse I mm-hmm. guess all that stuff must have been in that handbag but yeah, that's, that's kind of weird to that's me. not weird to me <laughs> all that's right not weird. Well, <laughs> okay <laughs> um March 14th, an apparent suicide note written in pencil on a bit of paper was found tucked in a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue in Venice. The note read, to whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. The pile of clothing was seen by a beach caretaker who reported it to John Dillian, lifeguard captain. Dillian notified Captain Ellie Christensen of West L.A. Police Station. The clothes included a coat and pants of blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white um, T-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and tan moccasin leisure shoes, size 8. The clothes gave no clue as to who their owner was. Apparently, he Hmm. didn't carry his birth certificate in his pocket. Apparently not. Wouldn't it have been nice if he did? It would be. And it'd be (laughs) real easy to steal his identity. (laughs) (laughs) Police quickly deemed Mark Hansen, the owner of the address book, found in the packet as the suspect. Hansen was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner and an acquaintance where Short had stayed with friends. He confirmed that the purse and shoe in the alley were Short's. Hmm. Hmm. And Toth, Short's friend and roommate, told investigators that Short had rejected sexual advances from Hansen and said it may be a cause for him to kill her, but he was soon cleared as a suspect. And you'll see that a lot. Lots of clearing of suspects. He must have had a good alibi or something. Maybe. The police interviewed over 150 men in the following weeks whom they believed were suspects. Manley, who was one of the last people to see her alive, was investigated but was cleared after passing numerous polygraph exams. Police- 150 men? Yeah. How do you have 150 men be suspects in your death? Pretty much just like anybody walking around. Like, you're a suspect and you're a suspect. <laughs> you're, yeah. <laughs> Everybody who lived in her apartment building. It's a lot. Yeah. Um. Police also interviewed several people found in Hansen's address book, including Martin Lewis, who was an acquaintance of Short's. 
Lewis was able to give an alibi for the date of Short's murder and was cleared. A total of 750 investigators, that's a lot, um, from LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff's deputies and 400 California State Patrol officers. Many locations were searched for evidence, including storm drains and abandoned structures, but there was no evidence that was found anywhere. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward for info leading to her her killer. Right now, in today's money, that'd be like $115,000. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, After the announcement, people came forward, but most of them were dismissed as false statements. Several false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice. And I will never understand that in my whole life. Why would you say I killed someone when, 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 okay, I would even get like, let's lie and say, oh, I think I know who did it. Maybe you get the money, but if you Mm -hmm. confess to the murder, you're going to get that money. Yeah, no attention, I guess. But like, that's not good attention. No, it'll go away for your rest of your life. Yeah, that's, that is stupid. Um, on January 26th, another letter was received by the examiner handwritten that read, here it is turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 AM had my fun at police black Dahlia Avenger. The letter contained a location where the killer would turn himself in police waited at this location on January 29th, but the killer did not appear At 1 p.m., the examiner received another cut and pasted letter, which read, have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Of course, with all of this going on, the media was in a frenzy. Local and national publications covered the story heavily, and many of the stories they were running weren't true. They said that Short had been tortured for hours before her death, which was false, but it let the police keep the actual true details of what happened out of the public's hand, which was good because then they could clear all those people that were coming with false confessions. Mm-hmm. The newspaper also shared stories of Short's personal life. They interviewed a stripper who had known Elizabeth, who told them that she liked to get guys worked up over her, but she'd leave them hanging dry. I mean, that is what a stripper is. Correct? Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't say she was a stripper. That's true. I mean, she should have been. Uh, but but that's her <laughs> own prerogative. If that's what she wants to do. <laughs> uh, some detectives and reporters thought maybe Elizabeth was a lesbian. So they started interviewing people at gay bars in L.A., but nothing came of it. The Herald Express received several letters from the killer made of cut and pasted clippings, one which read... I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. Newspapers ran front page news stories of this for 35 days after the discovery of her body. So they were just grasping at whatever they could for 35 days to keep this in the forefront of the newspaper. Yeah. You would think that that would be a good thing because there'd be so many people like invested and interested and looking Mm. for information or whatever, but it could also like it sounds like what happened be terrible because you get all these people coming in falsely just trying to get like a couple minutes of fame or whatever right 
Lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue told the press he believed Short's murder took place in a remote building or shack on the outskirts of L.A. and her body was transported to the city where it was disposed of. Because of the precise cuts and dissection of her corpse, LAPD looked into the possibility that the murder had been a surgeon, doctor, or someone with medical knowledge. Mid-February 1947, LAPD served a warrant to the University of Southern California Medical School, which was located near the site where Elizabeth's body was discovered and requested a complete list of students in the program. The university agreed as long as the students' identities remained private. Then they conducted background checks, but nothing more was brought forth with that information. That'd be a lot, a huge undertaking, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know about in 1947, Mm -hmm. but they run background checks on you when you go to college anyways. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um, By the spring of 1947, Elizabeth's murder had become a cold case with very few new leads, Sergeant Phineas Brown, who was one of the lead detectives on the case, blamed the press for compromising the investigation by printing unverified material. In September 1949, a grand jury conveyed to discuss um, inadequacies in the LAPD's homicide unit due to their failure to solve multiple murders, especially those of women and children in the past several years, which is a bummer. Um, Mm. A further investigation was completed on Elizabeth's past with detectives following her movement between Massachusetts, California, and Florida, and they interviewed several people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans, but none of the interviews led to any useful information about the murder. Because of how public this case was, there were a large number of confessions over the years that were all deemed false. During the initial investigation into her murder, there were a total of 60 confessions to the crime. Some of whom, (laughs) yeah, some of whom had not even been born at the time of her death. Even more Sergeant, yeah. (laughs) Sergeant John P. St. John was a detective who worked on the crime until he retired, saying, it is amazing how many people offer up a relative as a killer. (laughs) Terrifying. (laughs) Hey, we've all got that suspicious relative, right? That's true. (laughs) All right. So now we're going to talk about the suspects of who they thought um, might have killed her. In 2003, Ralph Asdell, who was an original detective on the case, told the Times that he believed he'd interviewed Elizabeth's killer. And he was a man who had been seen with his sedan parked near the vacant lot where her body was discovered on January 15th, 1947. A neighbor, neighbor driving by that day stopped to dispose of a bag of lawn clippings in the vacant lot and saw the, the parked sedan with the right rear door open. The driver of the sedan was um, standing a lot around the car. The neighbor neighbor's appearance startled the owner of the sedan and he approached the car and peered into the window before going back to the sedan and driving away that's creepy yeah the owner of the sedan was followed to a local restaurant where he worked but he was cleared of the crime Hmm. i mean the same could be said for the dude like that's technically um a crime disposing of stuff in a vacant lot though yeah i don't know it reminds me of um alice's restaurant yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, many crime authors and cleveland detective peter marylow have linked elizabeth's murder to the cleveland torso murders which took place in cleveland ohio between 1934 and 1938 
They studied the two murders, but discounted the relationship between the two. In 1980, new murder suspect Jack Anderson Wilson, a.k.a. Arnold Smith, was investigated by Detective St. John in relation to Elizabeth's murder. He made a possible connection between Elizabeth and the torso murders, but Wilson died in a fire on February 4th, 1982. Of course, the media swept in and it was profiled on Unsolved Mysteries in 1992, suggesting Jack Wilson was responsible for both the torso murders and Elizabeth Short. February. I think, do you know about the torso murders? <clears throat> yeah, a little bit. Is this, was this guy like a doctor? I don't know anything I about do, him. The only thing I know about it is that they... There was a fire, <clears throat> and whenever the fire department went in to stop the fire, they found to two torsos of women, I believe, too, um, in beds where the fire had started, and then that's as far as I got. Okay. I would think it would be pretty easy to discount if those were not, like, medically cut, because there's not a lot of people that could do the things that were done. Mm-hmm cleanly or whatever i mean where um, would you put the blood like there had to have been a place yeah where there that had stuff... to have been a place and it and i remember from like other things i've read about this that it was clear that it was done by either like a medical professional or someone with experience because there was like no bruising on the incision lines they were clean they were not like jagged it was done with like a scalpel or whatever um, so you would think that'd be pretty easy to say, like, this was the guy potentially or not, right? If those well, weren't done the same way. And the fact that the body was dismembered in between the two vertebrae, the vertebrae, yeah. yeah, like that was a big deal because that was super hard to like know exactly where you needed to do that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So on February 10th, 1947, we need to do an episode on the torso murders though. That would be good. Yeah. I'd like to know more about it. Jeannie French was murdered in LA and the media tried to connect this with Elizabeth. French's body was discovered in West LA on Grandview Boulevard. Her body was nude and beaten. Written on her stomach and lipstick was fuck you BD. B is in boy, D is in dog. With the letters Tex, T-E-X below. According to historian John Lewis, the scrawling on her stomach actually read PD, like police department. Hmm. Had penmanship, apparently. Apparently. Um, crime author Steve Hodel, son of George Hill Hodel, and William Rasmussen suggested a link between Elizabeth's murder and the 1946 dismemberment of a six-year-old, Suzanne Dignan, in Chicago, Illinois, Captain Donahue of LAPD stated he believed the Black Dahlia and the Chicago lipstick murders were likely connected. The evidence said that Elizabeth's body was found on Norton Avenue, three blocks west of Deignan Boulevard, Deignan being the last name of the girl from Chicago. There were also similarities between the handwriting on the Deignan ransom note and that of the Black Dahlia Avenger. Both texts used a combination of capitals and small letters, burn this for her safety. Both also had similar misshapen letter P and have one word that matches exactly. 
Convicted serial killer William Hiron served life in prison for Deegan's murder. He was initially arrested at 17 for breaking into a residence close to Deegan. Hiron said he was tortured by the police, forced to confess, and was a scapegoat for the murder. After being taken to the infirmary at Dixon Correctional Center on February 26, 2012 for health problems, he died on March 5, 2012 at the age of 83. He spent his whole life. I hope they were wrong about that. Yeah. But that happened all the time. <laughs> yep. Super sad. Ugh, that would be awful. Especially like we're reading um, the, what's it called? Devil's Knot. Yeah. And the work that the police do to get people to confess is sometimes so shameful. Like, and these are like, you're saying this is a 17 year old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then another thing I just watched a documentary not too long ago. I think I told you about it. Oh, I did. I told you to watch it. Did you watch it? The Strangled. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I cried. So did I. And that's the same thing. Like, I mean, we'll know if this is like what happened, but same thing. Somebody that was like an, a teenager spent, has spent their entire life in prison and it's like suspect whether or not they did it. Yep. So, and it's crazy. Like with all, like there was what, how many did they, did we say 60 false confessions to mm -hmm. Black Dahlia, like obviously people, number one, are sick and twisted in some way where they want this notoriety. Number two, if you're young like that, or even if you keep getting beat in your head that you did this, a lot of the times you just want it to end. And if it means and like a lot of times, these people, like, well, a lot of the times these people are like mentally disabled somehow, mm -hmm. like slow, not yeah like what the heck yeah <laughs> and their children <laughs> yep just like uh -huh. um what is it the Stephen Avery um uh-huh the the what the was even cousin, the yeah, cousin the cousin the nephew or whatever uh, it's like obviously he had no idea what he was saying it's just so hard to watch that yeah. when they do that it's like because they just want to get it closed in their book right uh, I don't know yeah it's terrible in 1991, Janice Knowlton, a woman who was 10 years old at the time of Elizabeth's murder, claimed that she witnessed her father, George Knowlton, beat short to death with a claw hammer in a detached garage of the family home in Westminster. She published a book titled Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer in 1995 and made other claims her father sexually molested her. Janice's stepsister, Jolene Emerson, said that the book is trash. And that Janice believed that that took place, but it doesn't make it reality. And she said, I know because I lived with her father for 16 years. Hmm. So that's kind of a toss up too. I mean, who knows? Nobody will know. Right. The truth. Um, so another suspect is George Hill Hodel. Police considered George Hill Hodel Jr. as a suspect in Elizabeth's murder, but he was never charged with the crime. He was suspected after his death and was accused by his son, which who we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. um, L.A. homicide detective Steve Hodel, for killing Elizabeth and several others. Prior to the Dahlia case, he was also a suspect in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, but was not charged. 
He was also accused of raping his own daughter, Tamar, but was acquitted. He fled the country several times and spent 1950 to 1990 in the Philippines. Steve, Steve said that his father was trained as a surgeon. Check that box. In 2003, he revealed notes from the 1949 grand jury that investigators had wiretapped Hodel's home and recorded conversations with an unidentified visitor saying, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. I killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Ew. I mean, what more do you want? I know, right? <laughs> Seriously. So Steve began investigating his father from scratch. So he didn't look at everything else. He took a, you know, a, a clear eye to it. A handwriting expert determined that there was a strong likelihood that his father's handwriting matched the script on some of the notes that the killer sent to the LAPD. In archives at UCLA, Steve found a folder containing receipts for contracting work on his childhood home. One of the receipts showed a purchase a few days before Short's murder of 10 five-pound bags of concrete, the same size and brand found near Short's body that police believed her killer used to carry her in. Hmm. Ooh. The I mean, problem, yeah, super suspicious. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the problem for Steve was most of the physical evidence of the case had been lost over the years and most of the witnesses or original cops were dead. Steve relied on carefully assembled anecdotes. He recreated conversations that the dead cops had with his friends, family, and the daughter of Lieutenant's family dentist. A number of them reporting that the department believed the culprit was a doctor who lived on Franklin Avenue, which is where the Hodel family lived at the time of the murder. Steve tracked down a policewoman who reported seeing Elizabeth on the street with a man and a woman on the night before she was murdered. I think he might have uh, figured it out. Sounds like it. <laughs> In 2011. Uh, no, no. 2001. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After two years of researching the case full time, Hodel went to Stephen K who was an acquaintance who worked in the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. Hodel still wasn't sure he could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that his father was the Black Dahlia killer, but he convinced his investigation had unearthed new material to justify a fresh look by the police. Kay, who was the assistant district attorney at the time, agreed to review Steve's work, and six weeks later, he sent Steve a letter saying, Thanks to some great detective work by his courageous son, Steve, the name of Dr. George Hodel will live in infamy. If George was still alive, he would file two charges of murder against him. Kay believed Steve was right. Mm -hmm. Steve started working on a book, Black Dolly Avenger, and kept it quiet to everyone but his girlfriend. In 2002, a few weeks before the book was supposed to come out, he started telling friends and family. He told June Hodel, who was George's widow, and she kept telling him it wasn't true. On the anniversary of the discovery of Elizabeth's body, Steve reenacted the drive that he believed his father took the night he killed Short. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Steve believes he's located while well, he was trying to oh, okay. do stuff. <laughs> So he um, believes he located a trail that connects his father to dozens of murders stretching across California. 
He also started looking into a string of murders in Chicago, one being a woman, Lucille Lalu, whose dismembered body was found the same way that Elizabeth's was. Her body was found about a half mile from his father's home along a street named Zodiac. He now has started investigating the Zodiac murders, believing that his father might have been responsible for those murders as well, which blows my freaking mind. Yeah. You have to listen to that podcast. <laughs> I do. We'll talk about that in a, at the yeah. end, but yeah. Um, so his father also had a home in, in Chicago. Yes. All right. Elizabeth's body was laid to rest at the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. Her mother, Phoebe, moved to Oakland to be close to her daughter's grave, but she returned to the East Coast in the 70s where she lived into her 90s. Oh, can you imagine? Oh, yeah. And like the way that she found out still breaks me into a million pieces. Mm -hmm. Like that's awful. Uh, Two weeks after Short's murder, Republican State Assemblyman C. Don Field prompted by the case introduced a bill calling for the formation of a sex offender registry where California would be the first state to make their registration of sex offenders mandatory. So at least she didn't die in vain. Something Mm -hmm. good did come of it. And of course her, her murder, unfortunately is one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. And it sounds like they are never going to be able to solve this now. Because he's definitively right, right, right. No, after so much time has passed, there's no way to nail down. I mean, Mm -hmm. the only thing I could think of is, and I don't know, is if there was any kind of DNA evidence that was left, which it doesn't sound like there was. Mm -mm. Perhaps Steve could have given some of his because he had his father's DNA to see if there's some sort of match, but I'm sure. If that was a possibility, he would have already done They would it. have done that. Yeah. yeah, it would have happened already. Um, so the podcast we were talking about, because we just started talking about this right before we started recording. I had listened to this podcast like two years ago. I My memory's terrible. But I remember listening to it and being like, OMG, <laughs> like this is insane. It's called The Root of Evil, The True Story of the Hodel Family and the Black Dahlia. And they interview Steve, and I think Steve might be the one that does it potentially, but they interview um, like the granddaughters or maybe the granddaughters do it. Great granddaughters of George Hodel. Um, And they have interviews with the daughters and them just all talking about why it sounds like he may have done it. He was a terrible human and it's just like, it's insanely interesting and very well done. So When you get done listening to us, I recommend you go listen to that. Well, and I have not listened to it either. So I would like to go listen to it. Also, I think that that's super interesting. And I'm trying to remember there was a, um, geez, I am, maybe it was H.A. Tomes. Hold on here. Uh I was watching a documentary. And I'm trying to remember who it, what, what it was about. Uh, I thought it was, no, I thought I knew what it was, but I can't, I, that's not it. But anyway, um, and it, it interviews George and no, it, it, it interviews Steve, sorry. Okay. It interviews Steve and about like his whole 
idea of his father being the Black Dahlia murderer and everything like that and how pissed like all of his family is at him because he wrote this book and they all think that it's just like blood money that he's trying to, you know, slander his father's name. And mm-hmm. it was really super interesting to watch his interview of, and, and it actually like took you through like his old home and like where he thought that this occurred. And I, I've got to, I've got to Google it and figure it. I'm sure it was on like Netflix, I think, um, mm-hmm. but I'll have to figure it out and I'll let you guys know where I've watched it, but it was super interesting. Yeah. It sounds like this guy might've been responsible for a lot of the unsolved things going on could you imagine if he was the zodiac killer no and the black dahlia killer that's insane that would be crazy yeah and maybe it is the only Uh, thing you want to the zodiac is like the murders weren't even the same as no they were just shootings so i i don't know but that would be crazy have to find the relation there yep so So, yes, my sources, um, imbd.com, wiki.com, thefamouspeople.com, and theguardian.com. The Guardian had a really good uh, story with uh, Steve Hodel and everything that he had going on with his book. So um, that was a really interesting article that I read there. Cool. So let us know how you guys feel about uh, George Hill Hodel. You think he's uh, the Zodiac and the Black Dahlia murderer? What do you, what do think, you think? he's guilty? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Know. All right. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode 88 of the Black Dahlia. Thanks for hanging with me and my crazy ass voice. <laughs> it and- is what it is. It sounds great. You sound beautiful. Thanks. It's raspy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you all have a good week and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.